love being here on days like this where I get to introduce the guest speaker. It's just so much fun, particularly when it's someone new to our community that we haven't heard before. So oftentimes when I am here to introduce the guest speaker, I'll ask them, well, how do you want me to introduce? And I get, you know, the resume a lot of times <laughs> or the bio, you know, these big long things. And I asked Maggie, how would you like me to introduce you? She said, well, tell them it's Maggie Whitehouse from England. <laughs> I would love for, uh, to introduce, and please help me welcome, Maggie Whitehouse from England. Ah, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Well, now, I think it's very important that you know that I am extremely famous. <laughs> Certainly in America. Whenever I came here when I was younger, I was Princess Diana. As I got older, I was Helen Mirren, or more appropriately, the Queen. And God has this terrific sense of humor. For decades now, one of my prideful announcements at workshops was that when you see me, you get absolutely the real deal. No teeth done, no Botox, no hair color, nothing like that at all. Absolutely, as God made me, all the scars showing. And then a week before we left, I got the voice. You know the voice, the voice in your head, the voice that says something very silly and very sweet and very loving and very don't do, please do do it, or a brick will be attached. And the voice said, Henna, Maggie. And I thought, Henna? I don't color my hair. And then I got, Pride, Maggie, I'd like you to color your hair. So, okay, I put some henna on my hair, just a little bit to make it slightly golder. And now, of course, in America, I am J.K. Rowling. <laughs> people is all projection of what we see and what I want to try and talk to you about this wonderful topic of you know the unique oneness of all which is this wonderful yes and isn't it yes I'm an individual yes we are all one yes in panentheism not pantheism as an ordained vicar in the United Kingdom I have to be very careful between pantheism and panentheism and that's one of those tricky things which is basically this is the way we say it that's right and they'll accept us, and this is the way we say it that is wrong and they won't accept us. But panentheism is that God in, infuses all things, but there is also God and there is also us. Whereas pantheism says we're all run, one. Now, I agree with both of those, actually. I don't have a problem with any of them, but then I try and live as much a non-dual life as I can. But the biggest problems we've got in our world are the fact that we mistake the ego for the soul. You can always tell, and I'm probably going to insult at least six of you today, <laughs> and if I'm lucky, it's only six. But I've always said to people, if somebody comes up to you and says, I'm coming from the heart, they are not. <laughs> because the heart does not need to tell you. But the ego does. And as soon as you say, I'm coming from the heart, the follow-on unspoken phrase is, and you are not. 
So the whole of my journey really is about allowing God to kick me out of the ego into the soul. And my journey has been fraught with adventure. My blog is called A Life of Miracles because it has been an extraordinary ride. Extraordinary. And when I let go, all the help I ever wanted was there. But of course, I didn't let go, did I? I had complete control for it. Complete, well, a little bit. But let me tell you just a little bit about the story that brought me to faith because you like stories, right? You like stories, okay. So I was an armchair Christian. An armchair Christian is somebody who turns up at Christmas, maybe at Easter, puts Church of England, which is what we were, on the correct forms, you know, signed on the dotted line, christened, confirmed, at least vaguely known to the vicar. (laughs) But I would sum it up by one of the sayings of St. Augustine, who's responsible for original sin, by the way, nothing to do with Judaism. Judaism doesn't even know original sin exists, so how could Jesus? I have a very good friend, Adam, who's Jewish, who keeps me up to the level on these things. And he said, what are all this stuff about original sin? What's all this about? Anyway, so I, but I will quote St. Augustine. So one of the things he said was, God grant me chastity, constancy, and patience, but not yet. <laughs> and that was me. That was me. And I worked for the BBC and for the independent television. I traveled the world. I went to China. I went to war zones. I was quite successful. And I never really thought much about God, except that you are always a believer. There's a saying, there are no atheists in the foxholes. And I can tell you, if you're in a war zone, or you're reporting for the World Service on the night of 9-11, you believe in God. Because that's basically all you've got left. All you've got left. And it's a shame that we don't believe until we get to the all we've got left, but God doesn't mind that, which is jolly decent of him. (laughs) Jolly decent. God is an Englishman, obviously. Jolly decent of him. (laughs) Actually, that kind of thing drives me crazy because sometimes people say to me, God is dog spelt backwards only in one of the world's languages. <laughs> there are other languages and there are other nations where God is probably something completely different spelt backwards. However, so I was this armchair Christian, didn't really think about it. And on one of my trips to China, I met a sound recordist. I was filming a documentary and this sound recordist asked me to marry him nine days in on the trip, never having even kissed me. And part of me was going, you're out of your mind. And he wasn't even my usual ultra-attractive, unavailable male. (laughs) He looked nothing like Neil Diamond. (laughs) Or Bruce Springsteen, or anything like that. And yet, this was the start of my journey, this incredible life of miracles. Because back in those days, late 1980s, I had a Sony Walkman. You remember the Sony Walkman? Yes, the one where you had to wind the tapes back around with your pencil, (laughs) stick it back in, and hope it was going to work this time. And the night after Henry Barley asked me to marry him, having never even kissed me, and I was so confused. I got up early that morning. We were filming that morning. I got up early, and I went out into the Chinese dawn. Now, you'd think it would be beautiful. It wasn't. It was really dull. There was no birdsong because they'd eaten them all. Trust me, they had to in those days. It's way back a long time ago. And I sat down on a rock, and I started my cassette recorder. And it was an LP by Steve Winwood called Ark of the Diver, and there's a song on it called While You See a Chance. One of the other things you need to know about me is I always cry when I'm telling stories. It's, it's part of my astrology. That, I deal with it. You can deal with it. And, So there I am, sitting there with this strange man having proposed to me. And the song comes out, stand up on a clear blue morning. 
Are you still free? Can it be? And the other goes, while you see a chance, take it. And I thought, this is a message. This is a message. So I went back down the hill and accepted a marriage proposal from a man I'd never kissed. My first marriage, I would have run away if I possibly could, having, having done that. Everything in the ego was sort of going, no, 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 don't do this, don't do this, this is stupid. No, no, don't do this. The family, of course, added, no, 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 don't do this, this is stupid. But of course, it was perfectly all right, because I was able to say to my parents, he went to school with my brother. <laughs> Correct class. Ah, oh, this was the late 1980s. I, what, what, what can I say? Uh, so I married a Henry, and Henry was an atheist, and I didn't mind. And over the next year, I fell in love with him, which was lovely. And then he got a terminal cancer diagnosis, and he died one year, 16 days after our wedding. Thank you. It's okay now. I'm married to a gorgeous hunk who's sitting at the back. <laughs> However, the angel came to see me on Henry's deathbed in the form of a hospice chaplain. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, but when you've got a really bad crisis on your life, you notice things, don't you? You're kicked into the present moment. You're actually kicked into the soul, which lives in the present, because the ego lives in the past and the future. It draws it into the present, but it's all based on what you're afraid of and what has happened to you before, whereas the soul is just open. Uh, but it does notice things, and I noticed that this, this chaplain was wearing a very bad rug. So I'm sitting there at this critical moment thinking, I don't think you should be thinking that. And he said to me, what's your religion, dear? And I said, Church of England, Father. And he said, and what's your husband's religion? And I said, oh, he's an atheist. And he said, oh, oh, I'm sorry, my dear, but he can't go to heaven if he doesn't believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. And got up and worked away. That, ladies and gentlemen, was an angel. Didn't feel like it at the time. I won't go into the language it felt like at the time. But it woke me up because something inside me rose up like a lion and went, that's not right. That can't be so. That can't be it. And that was the life force that kept me going through those difficult days after Henry died. And in fact, I went into the New Age, and I'm sure a lot of you have been into the New Age. I went into the crystals and the healing and the... Uh, the ascension and the he, uh, I became a Reiki master, all that kind of thing. And I ended up being quite happy, but I was broke. <laughs> and up until that point, having lived in the real world till I, Henry died, I'd been in you know, corporate work. I had money, but when I went into the new age, I went, was broke. And I thought, there's something going on here. And then I realized that for all my so-called happiness and all the stuff I was doing and the magazine I was running for holistic health and all that, in the corner of every room I went, there was a pretty little silk throw over a table with tea lights on it and crystals, and underneath it was a heaving pile of dung, of hatred of Christianity that I was just carrying around with me. And I have seen this. I'm a tutor in the UK interfaith, interfaith seminary. And the biggest problem they have is the heaving hatred for Christianity that's in there. And so I realized that was the wound that actually had to be healed. And that's what I do. I'm also a stand-up comedian in the United Kingdom. I work on the comedy circuit, which is 90% atheistic. 80% on the spectrum somewhere with a lot of people who are telling terrible stories about awful lives and making it funny. And my job, actually, is to be there as the cosmic Christ. Not as the vicar, 
not as the person saying there's any religion, but as the person mirroring love back to these people. And every now and then, they, they, I am their padre, they will come and talk to me if they have problems, and that's absolutely lovely. But my route back and the way I work is, my wound went in from the Bible. Because people quote to me, I am the way, the truth, the life, nobody comes to the Father except through me, which condemned Henry to hell. So I knew that the only way for me to heal was to go back to the Bible and take it apart. Not just to read the little bits I wanted to read, but to go through it to the nth degree. So I went to university to learn New Testament Greek, and I thought, that's okay, I'll read it in Greek. Then I found out there were 32,000 versions of the Bible in New Testament Greek. <laughs> so that wasn't going to work, was it? Only about 5,000 of them have significant differences, and only 32 are dynamic differences, but that dynamic in the differences is huge. And then God sent me a Jewish guy. That was very kind of him, I thought. He was at the end of his rope from Judaism, just as I was at the end of my rope from Christianity. And slowly together, we reeled ourselves back in. And once we'd reeled ourselves back in and become mystics, then God split us up. And it was God. It absolutely was God, because we were going for counseling, and we were in a difficult position. And I went online to Unity, Silent Unity, and I put a prayer up and said, divine order in our marriage, and two days later, he left me. So I couldn't even be mad! How annoying is that? I mean, I was mad, obviously, but, you know, I said, ooh, thank you. But that helped a little bit on the, uh, what God has brought together, let no man put asunder, but God can. But what a, the great gift of that marriage for me was that it took me into the Jewish Bible, took me into the Hebrew, took me into the Kabbalists, not the Madonna lot. They're a different kettle of fish, and we won't mention them. <clears throat> Bless them. Bless their hearts, as they say in, in, in the Southern, which basically means we don't need to think about them, really, do we? Uh, but the heart of Jewish mysticism is very, very simple. And it's magnificent because Christ is in it. Did you know that? Christ is in the heart of Jewish mysticism. And that's what I discovered. And that's what I've worked with ever since. And I'm lucky to work with uh, scholars in the United Kingdom, such as Dr. Margaret Barker. Look her up. She's amazing. Looking at the patterns of the universe, the patterns of creation, the actual DNA of how people came to believe in one God in the first place. Uh, because it was observation. In the old days, they didn't have much to do. Sitting around the fire at night, they'd had their supper. There were no books to read. There was no Netflix. You know, there wasn't that much gossip. All they could really do is watch the stars and tell stories. And down the generations, they started watching patterns emerging. And then they came up with an idea, because they didn't read or write. In Jesus' day, 99% of people did not read or write. And 1% could actually probably write something, but you were considered literate if you could mark your name. They couldn't read anything. So the Bible wasn't a book then that everybody read. There was a scroll that the rabbi read, and then they discussed it. Always it was discussed. What does this mean now? What does this mean to us now? What is the message behind it now? They did not hold on to the law for the sake of the law. And that, of course, is what fundamentalists do. Fundamentalism has lost the spirit and holds tight to the law. Because if you can hold tight to the law, you feel safe in the hope that somebody will come along 
to inspire you, you know, the second coming, that sort of thing, or the, or the rapture. But the task of the mystic is to say, that was the law then. What is justice? And the soul deals with justice. And justice sometimes isn't fair. Justice sometimes isn't law. But justice is all about the soul. So I've unraveled and got into some trouble doing it. I went very deep into the heart of this Jewish mystical tradition. And this was, again, 20, 30 years ago. And there was a certain amount of resistance from the Jewish male population to a white, non-Jewish girl writing books about this. So there was a, a, a fair amount of susurration about it. You know, that word is a wonderful word. <laughs> so it was a, a challenging thing to do, but that's what I do for people. Is I actually take them into the heart of the Bible and I say, point one, you can't translate Hebrew. Because if you translate the names of God in Hebrew, you will be so full of awe you won't want to read the rest of it. There are ten names for God in the Hebrew. Did you know that? You've heard about Yahweh, obviously, or Jehovah. You probably don't hear about any of the others. Five of them are feminine. The Hebrew Bible doesn't have a neuter genders, gender, so it's balanced them. And once you go back into that and you understand that the names of God basically mean different aspects of inspiration and breath, all of them, then you go, go oh, okay. Yahweh, for example, is the sound of breath. It's But, Yahweh is a masculine word. Yahweh doesn't even turn up on his own until Adam and Eve had left Eden. Did you know that? The whole creatrix of the world is the feminine. And this is a message that we need now with our environmental problems, to come back to the great mother. It is not blasphemy to talk of God as the great mother, because the creatrix is the Elohim. The Elohim. And that's what's translated in God in the Hebrew Testament. You'll see God, you'll see Almighty God, you'll see Lord. And these are all the different words. And until you know the Hebrew, you're not going to see that. But in the beginning, Origen, one of the great early first church fathers, translated the beginning of the Bible as, by the means of weaving the net, the great mother created the heavens and the earth. And the whole of Kabbalistic teaching is about something called the Pargod, the gate tapestry of creation. And we are all threads in that tapestry. And God is the warp and we are the weft. So the warp is always there. And whatever we weave, if we work with the warp warp and the weft, we make a tapestry. If we don't work with it, we create holes. And what we're doing in this modern world is we have to reweave a lot of that tapestry. But we are absolutely capable of doing it. So the Elohim... It's actually a feminine noun with a masculine plural ending. So that's, that's unique. It's a unique word in the Bible. And of course, people go in, what does it mean? What does it mean? It actually means birth through breath and creation and all those things. But when I do it on comedy, I basically say it's a, it's a goddess. It's a feminine, singular, and a masculine plural. So either it's an early understanding of the semen and the egg meeting, or it's a goddess being chased around the void by a load of gods, which brings, which brings the phrase, the, whole, the Big Bang, into a whole new perspective here. Yeah. But I will, 
So I will always say, basically, what we have to understand to start with is the universe was created by an overworked, overlooked, pregnant woman on a ridiculous deadline. <laughs> we can usually get a handle on that. But basically, the feminine in all of Judaism, even in the Orthodox Judaism, the feminine is seen as the receptor of the divine, the bride. And on a Friday night, when the Jewish people do their Sabbath Eve service, they've lost quite a lot of uh, the, they don't tend to do the original wording and things like that. But even so, it is the feminine that lights the candles. And this is important because in the Jewish tradition, in the Kabbalistic tradition, we walk with four levels. Fire, air, water, earth. Four, the four primary elements. And that's why there are four Gospels. That's advert. That's what we'll be talking about this afternoon, four Gospels. Why there are four. And of course, all the others, the Nakamadi ones and all that, but in fact, you don't need them. They're great fun, and I love them. And I get little insights out of them, but the message is four levels, four different levels of understanding of how you read this Bible. And the first one, which is literal, not so much. History lesson, not so much. Second one, psychological, what's the message? What's the moral? What's the karma? Because even if we don't believe in reincarnation, they did. The Pharisees believed in reincarnation. The Sadducees didn't. There's a couple of questions to Jesus. Who... who um, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's a question about karma. And Jesus said, no, nobody, he was born blind to reveal the grace of God on earth. But, so they did believe a lot of things that we don't necessarily believe now, but we can't understand them unless we know the allegories they're talking about. And if you can weave the social and economic pressures of the times into the story, you'll get the allegory so much better. And the third level is the mystical, which is my story. What does this mean to me? Why do I hate this book? What is, am I projecting onto this book? What is the problem with this book? Where is it hurting me and where is the wound in me? And the final level is the metaphysical, which is what does this say about God's plan for the world? Where is the process of this? And one of the books that I've written is about there's extraordinary patterns. The Bible's written in patterns. It was edited. So you, there is sometimes you have to go, hang on a minute, I don't think that fits. Let's go and have a look at that. Ah, okay, that was put in at the time of the Second Temple. And I need scholars to help me with that. I pretend it's me, but actually it's them. And you have to look at this. But once you realize the feminine is all the way through the Old Testament, you wouldn't think that, would you? You'd think it was nasty and misogynistic. But if you read the stories of the women in chronological order, it shows the journey of the human being from the ego to the soul. And the matriarchs are all working from the ego. They're the ones who are honored in the Torah. And that really, I really piss Jewish folk off, pardon my language, by saying, you know, you don't honor the matriarchs, they're, they're us. Well, honor uh, as they're us, but they're making all the mistakes that we make. Jealousy, anger, revenge, selfishness. They're going on about my rights, I have rights. Whereas you get out of there, you get to the, the, the books of uh, Ruth and Esther, two women who have their own books. Ruth has four chapters, that is not a coincidence, four levels. Esther has ten chapters, that is not a coincidence. Ten Sephiroth on the Tree of Life, which we'll talk about this afternoon. It's not a coincidence, those stories tell 
an exact story. But once you get to them, these women are working at the level of the soul. And these women have incredible lessons to tell us because they have stepped out of the tribe. And the thing with religion is that it loves to stay in the tribe. You might leave the tribe, but you're going to join another tribe, which will make the first tribe wrong. And then if that tribe hacks you off, you're going to join another tribe. But it's, we're naturally, we, we live in herds as human beings, very small herds. We don't really like herds of more than 30 people, apparently. So we're in trouble here, aren't we? So <laughs> probably we can bear with it. But, and the thing is that the, the ego is utterly vital. I'm not a Buddhist. I don't think we should remove the ego. But Kabbalah teaches so clearly the level of ego reading in the Bible and the teaching. And the ego is a vessel. I don't know if you know, but it's equated to the reticular activating system or the reptilian brain at the back of the head. So it's, it's all your data. Do you know Ho'oponopono? Yes. I love you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you to dissolve data. This is all data. And it's, some of it's incredibly useful data because it's everything you do on automatic, including breathe. The lovely little baby over there, his ego is working at the moment because he's still breathing. He remembers how to breathe. He hopefully remembers how to sleep sometimes. <laughs> That'll come, and then you'll go again. But it's, uh, the, and so the ego is what puts one foot forward in front of the other, what picks your breakfast, what picks the clothes you wear. It's the ego state of mind that says, I haven't got a thing to wear because it really, really needs red today, and you haven't got anything in red. Because the ego knows from the patterns of your life what's going to keep you alive, and that's all it cares about. And the irony of that is that the ego is the only part of you that is going to die. So the ego lives in fear. And the ego will do whatever it takes to stay alive. And that includes just, it doesn't include just food, it includes being in the tribe. So that it's going to be raised with the tribe and have a place in the tribe. And even if the tribe is totally dysfunctional, the ego will find a way to exist in the tribe by being the rebel to get enough tension to be fed or sorted. So the ego will work according, it's actually according to your blueprint or your astrology or your human design or whatever, your Enneagram, whatever you want to call it. But we all have this kind of blueprint in our ego of how we work with it. And this first vessel, if we have a good childhood, and well, most of us had a sort of good childhood. Our parents did the best they could with the knowledge they had, but sometimes. No. But the ego is basically summed up by this here. This triangle of the gut and the sex organs. So it is led by our gut instincts and it's led by our patterns and it's led by our desire for safety. And the difficulty between the ego and the soul when we get into spiritual work is that primarily women of my generation, but I think it's different now, but you'll all recognize this, you get your strokes by being nice and looking after other people. Good people look after peop other people. Good people don't charge for healing. Good people don't do this kind of thing. Jesus was poor, right? No. Apart from anything else, what did they do with the gold, frankincense, and the myrrh? That was worth more than a million in those days. And also, Jesus could just put out his hand and take whatever he wanted. And he lived in a society that was so interested in having holy people coming, they left out food to bribe them. Because again, they didn't have books or Netflix. They had no entertainment, so a mad bastard coming in from outside. 
and teaching them new stuff was just terrific. They would bribe them in. There were always going to be people. I'm sorry about the swearing. I'll probably get a complaint about the swearing. Um, <laughs> so, the ego is very clever at pretending to be the soul by being good. And the way you tell whether it's the ego is that you need the praise or you need to turn away the praise. Some people actually won't receive at all. That's ego. Because if you want to give, you have to understand that other people always want to give also. So you have to be willing to receive. Only the soul will hold the balance between giving and receiving. If you're somebody who will not receive kindness, will not receive gifts, will not receive money, one, you're going to be broke, and two, you're working from ego. Sorry. But your ego has persuaded you that this is the soul. Because it's good to give. It's good to give. The soul, on the other hand, is this vessel. It's the vessel that says, I offer you all my knowledge, God. Tell me what is right now. Not according to my rules and regulations, not according to my tribe, but what is appropriate now. And the soul's great mantra is, I don't know. I don't know. Because until God speaks to you in the now, you don't know. And that's the great joy of understanding the soul, which is that wherever you are, wherever you are, in what situation, the moment you can say, I can't do this, but you can, and I don't know, something is going to shift. Now, there's loads of situations where the ego is utterly, utterly brilliant. It puts up shelves very well. It mends broken pipes. It does all these things. But even so, all of you who work manually or even those of you who work with, with literature or anything like that, you will know that there have been times in your life when it should have worked according to the memory or the plan or the plot. You've got Ikea here, right? Yeah, well, never mind. You know, It should have worked according to the instructions, but it isn't going to, really. And there just comes a point you have to sit back, take a break, go to sleep, have a cup of tea, and just let go of that lockdown that the ego has on, I know how to do this. I know how to worship God. I know what's right. I know what's wrong. But don't get me wrong, the soul is not a wuss. The soul knows the word no. And the soul will very clearly say the word. You can do it. It's fine. I'm not there. And that's where we get um, Gandhi and passive resistance, you know, nonviolent confrontation, that kind of thing, of just very quietly going, no. And the other difference between the soul and the ego is the ego works on what people think of me and what people think of my tribe. And my ego in the United Kingdom said, take the turquoise top and the silk trousers. And it was right. I'm very happy in the turquoise top and the silk trousers. But it also was going, well, maybe you should take the red, maybe you should take this, depends what you think about this, that, and the other. But you've got to work with this thing and work out whether it's actually helping you or not. But it's always about me and my people. We could possibly speculate that the President of the United States has quite a powerful ego. However, the soul works for the greater good. 
not just for the good of all humanity, but for the greater good. And the soul is willing to sacrifice, to make everything sacred. That's what sacrifice means. It means everything is sacred. I am not more important than you. I am not more important than the naked mole rat in the zoo. I'm damn sight less important than the naked mole rat in the zoo. However, so the, the soul will always do for the greater good, but it will nearly always do it in a way that is silent and quiet because it does not need to be acknowledged. And this is one of the difficult things we've got with feminism in the modern world. I am utterly a feminist, don't get me wrong, utterly a feminist. I've been chief executive of a company, I've done what was called a man's job, I've slapped blokes who groped me, I've done all the, all the, all the stuff out there in the world, but I also know that the soul is the feminine vessel. And it's, about, it's not about going out there fighting for change. The ego loves to fight for change because it makes the other wrong. And of course, if you fight the enemy, you become the enemy. Because you have to use the same tactics as they do and the same weapons as they do. But the feminine, the receiving aspect, in men as well, don't get me wrong, you're 49, 51 like we are. And when you've got transgender, it's just that 4951 that moves over, or if you're gay or something like that, and that's absolutely fine. It's part of your life's path or your karmic path, and well done, my God, I admire you. And our daughter's gay, and we've seen her go through some challenges, my goodness. And my best friend in England is transgender, and my God, you know, her lack of self-esteem is the problem, not a gender. Because she walks down the street with a hit me, hit me, hit me, hit me. Attitude, not a, I'm a magnificent human being and beloved of God. Because she's an atheist, because Christianity has told her she's a monster. She's not, she's beautiful, but she, until she learns that actually the, the lesson we all have to learn is the soul takes no account of gender or sexuality at all. You are just a human representation of Christ. It's the ego that cares about your gender because it's your genitals. And it's very difficult for me to explain sometimes to people who are transgender or gay or something who've had such prejudice from so-called spiritual people that actually they're working from ego because the soul doesn't give a flying rap what your gender is. You've got soulmates out there that are of opposite genders or similar genders to you where you can talk for hours to this person and anybody working from ego would assume it was sexual because the excitement level between you was so strong. So it's very easy to mistake those things. So we actually got thrown out of somebody's house once because um, the male, the husband of the, of the family and I were on a, a spiritual pathway together and we would go, yeah, 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 yeah. And my husband's cool with that. He was just going, they're going, yeah, 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 I'll go and look at cars. And, uh, but the wife was going, this has to be sexual. Yeah, so you, that's, that's the bliss of God, and that's why people will mistake it, and they'll draw it down into this idea of the flesh. But to return, I think I'm close to the end of it right now, to return to this idea of the Jewish Sabbath Eve. It's in four sections, and it's magnificent for any feminist to understand, and every masculine feminist as well, and I'm pretty sure most of you will be masculine feminists too, is that the ceremony is in four levels of fire, air, water, and earth. And the lead is taken by the feminine. If there's no woman, the feminine and a man will do it. But what the woman will do 
is she'll put her hands up like this and she'll say, Lord of the universe, I'm about to perform the sacred light duty of kindling the lights in honor of the Sabbath. Even as it is written, and thou shalt call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable. And may the effect of my fulfilling this commandment be that the stream of abundant life and heavenly blessing flow in upon me and mine. That thou be gracious unto us and cause thy blessing to dwell among us. Father of mercy, O continue thy loving kindness unto me and unto my dear ones. Keep far from us all manner of shame, grief, and care, for in thy light do we see light. In thee is the fountain of life. Amen. And then she lights the light, the light of the Christ consciousness, and draws it down to the candles and lights the candles. And she at that point is Christ consciousness. Or he, if he's doing it as the feminine, because as soon as you receive, receiving is feminine, giving is masculine. It's always one thing to remember. Giving is masculine, receiving is feminine. We are meant to stay at home and wait for the bouquets. (laughs) So then, the priestess, which is what she is, takes the wine because her whole body is infused with the light and pours the wine for her husband. And of course the feminist goes, she's pour the wine for her husband. No, it's demeaning, it's demeaning. No, she's the light. Pouring the light into the, of, the, of the wine, which it represents air because of the scent and the fermentation. Pouring the light for her husband and giving it to him. And from that point, he takes the service down from air through water to earth. And then he has to go to the synagogue to continue the prayers. If you said to a woman in Jesus' time she was lesser than a man, she would laugh in your face. And that's the great, beautiful legacy of Judaism. And if I have appealed to you, and if you want to come this afternoon, we're going to talk about these patterns, and we're going to talk about how we can read the Gospels through these patterns, and how they just transform the story of suffering, death, and resurrection. Thank you very much. Queen Maggie, thank you. Wow.